0: Thank you, Stephen, and um, rest assured I'm not going to talk for an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) And and the people said amen. (laughs) Turn to the book of the Apostles, um, chapter 11, and in our study this morning, um, this paragraph draws us just one more step closer to the end of the first section of the book, which is chapters 1 to 12. Um, But there are changes that are happening. So you'll remember last week that we saw that a seismic change took place in chapter 10 and the first part of 11. A change that everybody should have known was coming because it was rooted in the covenant going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 but as we saw last week a big change took place because God shows no favoritism now there's another change that's going to take place in our passage today it's not as seismic but it's important because the center of gravity of the early church is now going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch And that change is going to elicit both controversy, but ultimately spiritual vindication. This morning, I want to look at each of the four, what I'm going to call vignettes in the passage. And that looking at the four, that will create a context to do both a personal as well as a corporate application. So so that's where we're going to go. But let's read the vignettes beginning in chapter 11 at verse 19. Now, the, the conjunction here is really important. Now. And so the now links us to the previous verse where the dissidents challenged Peter on what had happened in Caesarea. But now they were able to say then God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. And so now we get a description of what that actually means. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled to, okay, the text says Phoenicia, that's Lebanon, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now Luke's not going to deal either with Lebanon or with the Cyprus in this passage. He is going to deal with Antioch. And they spoke to no one except the Jews. But among them were some people of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on, he- on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also proclaiming the Lord. And the first vignette ends in verse 29. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. Second vignette, verse 22. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And great many people were brought to the Lord. Now, how do you manage growth? Okay, third vignette. Vignette. Then, verse 25, Barnabas came, went to Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was, it was that for an entire year that they were in the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, fourth vignette. At that time. Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that they, uh, according to their ability, and each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. And they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Paul. So we got four short vignettes, but remember, that's going to lead to both personal application but also a corporate um, application now let's before we get into the first vignette which I'm just entitling uh, the center of gravity changed uh, let me create a little parenthesis here for just a minute Um, some of you know that um, I have a I have a deep love Um, and affection for cities. And so whenever I'm studying texts of scripture, I'm I'm fascinated by what was going on, uh, particularly in the New Testament um, and in urban centers of the Roman Empire. And uh, back in the late 90s, I was on a sabbatical from my my work at Christian Direction, and I did a postdoctoral year um, uh, with some people that had a real expertise in the Gospel of Matthew. And and that really... uh, Stimulated me. Um, m- many of my students now complain. Uh, They'll say, um, Don't you realize that there's 25 other books in the New Testament? Why are you always teaching Matthew? I said, I fully recognize the canon of Scripture. It's just I haven't finished with Matthew yet. So when I finish with Matthew, I'll, I'll move on. But it, it didn't take long in studying the Gospel of Matthew to recognize that after the ascension of Jesus, Matthew gravitated north out of Palestine, and settled in the city of Antioch, and he probably became, if not one of the pastors in the house churches in Antioch, he probably even became the elder of the churches in Antioch. And so I was really intrigued as to this city. Now, in this sidebar, um, I was... I was down in in New Jersey with Sandy on vacation, and I was reading an article in the New York Times about a special exposition that was gonna take place in all places in the Worcestershire Fine Arts Museum in Worcestershire, Massachusetts, on what? On the roots of the city of Antioch. And I said, San, when we go back to Montreal, we're going to go through Worcester. Now, it was a fascinating discovery. I actually went back a couple of times You see, Antioch was probably the third or the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time of Matthew and at the time that Luke is recording here. Um, It was an incredible city because it had been established as an outpost for the Roman army before they actually built their headquarters further east in Constantinople. Um, At the time, it was a city of probably 300,000 to 500,000 people. So small by modern standards, but after Rome and Alexandria, this was a thriving metropolitan area. It housed the army, so there was this great big boulevard down the middle of the city, That was probably three kilometers wide, uh, three kilometers long, very large. It had colonnade posts built of marble, and the army would always come down that street. Um, it, It was a large economic area because it was a day's walk from the Mediterranean, so it was a very fertile area, and agriculture drove the economics which made it then a very commercial city. People were attracted to this city because it was both a beautiful city, an outpost, but also created for commercial exchanges. It was then, as I said, a political place, but it became the birth to a cultural center. And it's here that many of the great rhetorical schools in Latin had their roots and blossomed. Now, What's interesting about this city of some 300,000 people is that better than two-thirds of the urban space was occupied by infrastructure, whether it be the pools, whether it be the theaters, whether it be the colonnade posts, whether it be the circuses. So that means you had to put 300,000 people into a very densely populated center. It also means that when you do the comparisons... So we know today that, for example, Calcutta, in India, is the most densely populated city in the world. Antioch easily surpassed even Calcutta in its density. So, So think about what that means. If you throw your garbage into the river that went through the city, you were polluting the water. If you burned it, you were polluting the air. So think about the hygienic issues that goes into a city, and archaeologists to this very day have never found a sewer system in that city. The level of infant mortality must have been huge. But here's what's really interesting. One archaeologist has found now, this was discovered at the end of the 19th century, so, so read it in that context. He said that we have been able, through archaeological studies, to find that there are 18 tribes that lived in this city. Now, we would call them ethnic groups, but the city was actually constructed ethnically so that the Syrians were on one side of the city, the Greeks were on the other, and if you studied studied antiquity, you understand there was no love lost between the Syrians and the Greeks. The Romans were in the more luxurious part of the city, the Jews were everywhere. So all of a sudden, when you begin to read the Gospel of Matthew, some things begin to make sense. Why why does Matthew have the largest concentration of healings in the gospel? Because Matthew would have easily figured out if people are going to follow Jesus, we've got so many diseases here, we better be able to prove to them that this Jesus deals with health issues. Or children. No other gospel talks about children as much as Matthew's gospel. Why? Because... Think about how children would have suffered in both the waterborne diseases and the airborne diseases in that city. Infant mortality, as I said, was huge. But think about the other thing that Matthew does in his gospel. He, he starts it with a genealogy, a genealogy that includes five women. Four of them were non-Jews. How does Matthew's gospel end? As you are going make disciples amongst all the ethnic groups in the world and I can imagine Matthew muttering under his breath and they all live here in Antioch this was a city where Christianity was going to take root and flourish therefore the center of gravity has moved north now in the first vignette, in verses 9 to 19. To 12. Okay, end of the parentheses. That's Antioch. Okay, uh, um, the first vignette. It's interesting that two huge initiatives now take place with this change in the center of gravity. There's the geographical progression of the good news from Jerusalem and, Sam- and uh, Samaria um, and Jerusalem, and now it's going to move to Lebanon, to Cyprus, and now to Antioch. So there is a geographical expansion that's at hand. But I want you to notice it's not the geographical expansion that interests Luke in telling this vignette. He says that there were some people from Cyprus and Cyrene, so these would have been the Jews of the Diaspora. They get to Antioch, and Luke says, and they began to talk To the Hellenists. Now, these weren't just Greeks who had converted to Judaism and then were now going to become Christians. These were, by using the term Hellenists, these are the Greek-speaking mixed population pagans. And these people had figured out if the Holy Spirit and repentance unto life goes to the Jews and it goes to the Greeks who became Jews and now get the Holy Spirit, then why can't the Spirit just do an end run around the whole thing and even reach out to these Greek-speaking pagans? And Luke captures that with this word, the Hellenists. And so not only do we get a geographical expansion, we get a cultural expansion of the gospel. But notice the change. Up till this point in Acts, the disciples and the followers of the disciples were communicating the good news to Jews or to converted Jews. And they were talking about the Messiah. But what happens when these Cyprians and Cyrenians reach out to the Hellenists. Messiah language isn't going to connect. What does the text say? They proclaimed Lord Jesus. And now all of a sudden the message is shaped for the mindset and the worldview and the social imaginary of these people who were very different in the ethnic diversity of Antioch. But, Luke's really clear, but you've still got to repent. And so the text says, they turned to the Lord. Okay, the center of gravity is moving. Now, second vignette, verses 22 to 24. And uh, the news gets back to Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's somewhat easy to say that um, uh, Jerusalem decided to send um, the, um, uh, the 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 troops in to make sure everything was kosher. Maybe, if they were planning on that, they didn't send the right person. So, did was Barnabas sent because he knew the people from Cyprus that had. Evangelized because we know from Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas was a Cyprian, he was from Cyprus. So, did he know some of these people? So, it created a relationship for this cultural expansion of the church. Um, Did he know Barnabas about the cultural diversity of this city and, and was at home with it? For sure, he was a logical choice because he was a Jew but a Jew who had grown up in the diaspora. So he understood what it was to live as a follower of God when you're not the majority, when you're a real minority. And so he becomes the logical choice to find out what's going on. And and the portrait of Barnabas is now becoming clear. You'll remember in Acts chapter 4, he was from Cyprus, But he was a Levite, so he understood the Levitical code, but he was a man of means. And remember in chapter 4, he took his means and he laid the benefits at the feet of the apostles to be used for kingdom work. Um, In chapter 9, he's the one that gets Saul, takes him actually to the elders in Jerusalem to plead his case. This is a good guy. But when he saw what was happening, it was Barnabas who took him down to the coast, probably to Joppa, put him on a boat, and said goodbye. It's not safe for you to be hanging out in these parts. And so, now, Barnabas becomes the one who saw the grace of God, the one who encouraged people, but why not? That was his name. He was the son of encouragement. Um, he was a good man, the text says. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of trust in God. And he was an evangelist. And he enters into this cultural expansion of the church. And the text says, a great many people were brought to the Lord. And, And this is a favorite expression of Luke now. This is now the fourth time where he talks about and many people were brought to the Lord or were added to the Lord. Luke wants us to understand geographical expansion, cultural expansion, and numerical expansion. And so, was Luke's presence, was, was Barnabas' presence in Antioch controversial? Maybe. Was the Spirit vindicated by what was going on in this change in the geographical center? the world? For sure. Now, the the question comes in the third vignette, starting in verse 25. How do you manage growth? You've got this huge shift going on. You get this growth going on. Barnabas, the evangelist, but the good man, full of Holy Spirit, full of faith, he's obviously got to be asking the question, how do you manage this? What do you do about it? And right away, the text says, then, then, he thought about Saul. And so he goes from Antioch up to Tarsus, and and the sense of the word is that Saul would have been somewhat reticent to make a move. But Barnabas convinces him, and so he comes back, and the text says, for a year, Barnabas and Saul taught a great many people. Now, what had happened in verse 21? A great many people had been brought to the Lord. Now, Barnabas and Saul, for a whole year, teach a great many people. And a fascinating thing happens. Because of all this cultural expansion, numerical expansion, all of a sudden the people in the city sense that something's going on. And so for the first time, it says here, the disciples were called Christians. Now, the the word here is really a Latin term. This was what the, the Romans, through the Latin language, loved to do. They loved to pick a group of people, stick a label on them, and then they said, now we understand them. Okay, So they did this with the Herodians, a group of Jews who were faithful to Herod the Great. So we're going to call them Herodians. Okay, The Greek-speaking pag- pagans, they're the Hellenists. Okay, These disciples, Luke had already referred to them as people of the way, believers, saints. But for the first time, the Romans stick a label on them and they call them Christians. Now, this is this is not in the text, so this is this is free. Um, it's gonna take fifty years for this label to stick. It would appear that the early Christians didn't like the label. Now, think about that for a minute. Uh, I mean, the the worst thing that you can accuse somebody in the New Democratic Party of Canada, oh, you're nothing but a socialist. You know, the, you, know you notice they fly, fly from that like a pest, okay? So if you say to somebody in the Liberal Party of Quebec, oh, you're a separatist, you know, they fly from it. People don't like other people giving them a label. and we have to wait until the writings of Ignatius, Inyas of Antioch, to begin to use this description of the Christians. And eventually, the label stuck. Why? Because what did it mean? It meant that you were a follower of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, in the second century, the church began to use this all the time. But isn't it interesting that The label came from the others. Didn't stick at first. But eventually, it became the label that now describes better than 35% of the world's population. And it all starts here in Antioch. Okay, first vignette. The geographical center of the church moves north. Second vignette this the cultural and numeric expansion is vindicated and it's vindicated through a good man Barnabas okay third Barnabas needs help so he goes gets Saul and together over the course of the year they help to teach and to manage the growth of the church now here's where the growth of the church in this third vignette will take us when you get to the fourth century of the early church, the pastor, the elder, the bishop in Antioch was John Christosom. And he talks in his writings of better than 400,000 people in Antioch being Christians. Don't despise small beginnings, as Zechariah likes to tell us in his small little book in the Old Testament. Okay, the fourth vignette. Now, the fourth vignette is is, is quite interesting. It's almost like it's an add-on into the story. And now, the reader is invited to understand the place of prophecy in the church. And, and, And the text says, at that time. So, with this geographical, cultural, and numeric expansion, prophets probably from Jerusalem, certainly from Palestine, begin to come to the city. Now, prophecy became so big in those early communities that Paul actually devotes a chapter to it in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about how to use this gift of the Spirit properly. The mistake we make is that we often think that prophecy is predictive. It looks to the future. But less than 2% of the prophecies in the whole Bible talk about the future. So it's just as easy to say that the gift of prophecy might just be the gift of preaching. The gift of proclamation in the community. Now, in this case, it's predictive. So it's one of those examples of the 2% that I was talking about. And so what does Agapus do? He talks about a famine, and we probably have some hyperbole here. He says, over all the earth, or over all the world. Now, uh, critics like to get in, well, we know there wasn't a, um, a, a famine over all the earth at the time when Claudius was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, probably, uh, Agabus is talking in his prophecy about A famine of great import. Um, And he was dead on. Because when we look at the historical record, when Claudius was the emperor of Rome, there were terrible harvests in Judea. There was sporadic famine that took place in different areas across the Roman Empire, including in Jerusalem. And it's this little prophecy that is going to have a huge impact on Paul's ministry. Because you'll remember in Galatians chapter 2 um, when Paul and Barnabas, his name changes now, Paul and Barnabas become are sent by the church in Jerusalem to work with the Greeks and the Hellenists The church in Jerusalem said, don't forget the poor. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, which is exactly what we wanted to do. And so, in 1 Corinthians 16, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and in Romans chapter 15, he solicits money from the churches in uh, Asia Minor, And then actually in the great capital, he solicits funds to take care of those that have been affected by the famine. And it all has its roots in the prophetic word, the proclamation, the prompting of the Holy Spirit in Agabus' life and in his mouth. Now what does the church in Antioch do? And this is beautiful. Look at the verbs. They determined... According to their ability, each one is going to send relief, and they sent it by Barnabas and Saul to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what Paul was going to teach subsequently. Go to, go to 2 Corinthians chapter nine and verse six. Everybody has to decide, according to their own means, how to give, And to give cheerfully. So think about this for a minute. There are a couple pieces of news that really struck me this week. Uh, Many of you know that uh, Sandy and I have done many years of teaching and formation in Haiti. Um, In the first eight months of this year, 2,400 people have been killed in the city of Port-au-Prince. So that means a lot of our sisters and brothers of Jesus have been killed in the chaos and the anarchy that's going on in that city. So what do I as a Christian in Montreal do? I determine in my own soul with my wife according to what we have. We prepare a gift and we send it to our partner churches in Haiti because we want to be involved in relief. Now, there's other things that Sandy and I do with our money, but we keep a certain percentage of it available for relief. Okay, bring it closer to home. Fires break out, and Yellowknife is evacuated. This morning, if you listen to the news, West Kelowna has been... (laughs) West Kelowna doesn't exist anymore. It's been decimated by the fires my friends our sisters and brothers in jesus are affected by fires now all of us complained back earlier in the summer when we were all suffering from the effects of the smoke and those of us that have asthma you know we just we made sure that our ventolin was readily available okay but in situations of emergency the church is called everybody determines according to their means They give for relief and they send it to the church. This is our solidarity as a global movement. And this is all prefaced. It's all located in how Agabus sensitized the church and the church in Antioch took it seriously to help the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And then this becomes a global movement that Paul's a part of. So, is there controversy? Yeah, there sure is. But is the spirit vindicated? Believe it. And it's right there in short, four, four short vignettes. Okay, so what? Okay, Glenn, you told a nice story. Okay, what's that mean? Okay, I think there's two. Here's two things that really struck me this week. Um, the first one is really corporately. Um, I think that it's worth your time, um, this coming week, and then particularly once we begin chapter 13, um, to look at the church in Antioch. What was this church doing? Um, so we've got um, this passage, um, we've got chapter 13, particularly the first five verses, when the elders in this multi-ethnic church send Saul and Barnabas on what is called the first missionary journey. And then when they come back in chapter 14, there's some fascinating descriptors of this church. I made a list of 10 of them. But but here's two that stand out in this passage. So let's just stay in the text. Um, Here's a church that takes its context seriously. It would have been really easy for the Jews who converted to Jesus, or for the Greeks, who converted to Judaism, and then converted to Jesus, to say, Jesus is for us. But they said, no, wait a minute. We live in a culturally diverse city. We've got to take our context seriously. We've got to think about what it means that the Holy Spirit is poured out on Everybody that leads to repentance and to life, and that means it's not Jesus just for us. The context obliged a different approach and a different discourse. And so, my friends, how are you taking our context more seriously? This was brought home. Oh man, I tell my when the Holy Spirit talks, listen. Um, I I was thinking about this as I was preparing this week. I I remember back in the mid-80s, probably, uh, let's say, uh, 86, 87, um, church that Sandy and I were a part of in in Saint-Laurent, on a Sunday morning, um, four Cambodian women showed up at church. They didn't speak French, but it was obvious they were followers of Jesus. The next week... Eight of them showed up. Within a month, there were 20 of them. And by that point, I, because I do a lot of work on urban research, I went to see the demographer in what was then, but is now, the borough of Saint Laurent. And we were friends, and I said to him, I, I told him this story, he said, oh yeah, Glenn, I forgot to tell you. With the repatriation of Cambodian refugees from Cambodia and the camps in Thailand to Canada, we have now settled about 1,500 Cambodians just north of your building. And I said, yeah, I know, and a lot of them are coming to our church. And, and, and I'll tell you what, the, the spirit is really funny. Soon after Sandy and I were married in 1976, and the Cambodian War broke out, we just felt a touch of the hand of God in our life that we should adopt a Canadian baby. And so we started all the process, and then the United Nations shut it down uh, because of all the abuses that took place. Um, and so we, we never adopted a child from Cambodia. But we started to pastor a Cambodian church. And then when you know it, God in his divine um, uh, humor, where, where does he send my daughter and my son-in-law to minister and to have our two granddaughters? Uh, in Cambodia. In Cambodia. See, my friends, context counts. And so God, by His Spirit, does these things. So so there's something. This is a church that takes context seriously. But here's a church that's open to change. Imagine, maybe they were reticent, but somebody else gave them a label, but it stuck. And they were open to the prophetic word of Agabus. And so, how are we as a church open to change? Far too many of us, we live by the seven last words of the church. We never did it that way before. Okay, my friends, bury that slogan. In other words, if it ain't broke, break it. Okay, because the Spirit's on the move. And that's a thing of the church. So, so, the, the, so context is critical, but second of all, be open to change. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. So so that's kind of a corporate application. Okay, in conclusion, a personal application. Two little expressions jump off the page at us. Um, In the first vignette, the hand of God was at work. And people saw it. And then Barnabas shows up in the second vignette and he saw the grace of God in the lives of these Greek speaking pagans who decided to follow Jesus. Let me ask you a question How do you see the hand of God? How do you see the grace of God? See, my friends, that's about being open to the Spirit. So that when you see the hand of God and you see the grace of God at work, oh, for the Spirit's sake. Join it. Don't resist it. Become a part of it. Because that's how both the cultural and the numerical expansion of the church happens. God uses the church to move forward. He doesn't do it all by himself. He wants to include us in his project. So a corporate application, you know, study the church in Antioch. What's it tell you about being a church? But, second of all, well, on a personal side, think this week. Am I open to seeing the hand of God at work? Am I open to seeing the grace of God? So that when it's all said and done, God and God alone gets all the credit. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we lift up your name today because a lot of what we're about as a church here in Montreal, you can draw straight lines back to Antioch and Acts chapter 11. And Lord, I would pray that you would prompt in my life and in the lives of my sisters and brothers just a deep commitment to seeing your hand at work and joining it to identifying the grace of God as it's at work, your grace in the lives of others about it, and we join it. And so, Father, uh, as this week goes along, may the example of the church in Antioch deeply affect us, because we want to be people that are known like Barnabas was known, good people, um, open to the Holy Spirit, full of faith, We pray this because we want you to get all the credit. In your name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. Just want to take a moment to thank you for coming up behind me and being with us for the last couple of weeks.